If you're tired, you can just lean your head on the shoulder of the person next to you. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Okay, we're in Hebrews 12, running the race. So open up to Hebrews 12, and let's look beginning in verse 1. I want to read a couple verses in the beginning, and then 12 through 17 we're going to hit tonight. So Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled." Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Let's pray. Lord, again, we know that as we get into your word, we're not just reading some black and white letters on a page. But, Lord, we're reading your heart to us, your voice to us, your work in us and through us, living and powerful. We know, Lord, that you search our hearts, and we need you to search our hearts. And, Lord, tonight as we're talking about running the race with endurance, encourage us, I pray. In Jesus' name, Lord, take your word tonight, hide it in our hearts, that we might grow by it. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a great story about Alexander the Great, as he was advancing on Persia. Now, you guys know who Alexander the Great was. A tremendous, uh, conquered the world at age 30. At one critical point, it appeared that his troops might be defeated. The soldiers had taken so much plunder from their previous campaigns that they had become weighed down and were losing their effectiveness in combat. Alexander immediately commanded that all the spoils be thrown into a heap and burned. The men complained bitterly, but soon came to see the wisdom of the order. Someone wrote, quote, It was as if wings had been given to them. They walked lightly again, and victory was assured. So he says, laying aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. And you know that we're not only in a race, we're in a, we're in a war, right? We're battling against these things of the flesh, of the world, and of the devil. In fact, it's interesting, just kind of a little bit of the dovetailing between our Sunday messages and this one here, that we got to continue keeping at it as athletes, as soldiers, and as farmers. It's really important. So what I want to do is kind of get a running start on running the race, if we can, and by just going back a little bit as far as what the writer to the Hebrews has been telling us. He says in verse 1, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. That's the first thing about running the race. Secondly, looking unto Jesus in verse 2. 
To run the race with endurance, we cannot have divided attentions. We've got to have a soul focus on the Lord. Amen? We've got to keep our eyes fixed on him and continue to bring them back in focusing on, that, on him. He leads the way, and not only that, he sets the pace. So he's like our Alexander the Great. He's the one that sees the things needed and says, here's what needs to happen if we're going to continue forth in victory. In fact, Paul said in, to the Corinthians, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So again, we've got to keep our eyes looking to Jesus. He is the author and the finisher. That means the author, he's the one that pioneers it as far as our salvation. And he's the one who promises to bring us to salvation. He's the finisher. He's the finish line for us. He is our example and our savior to the finish. Okay, so laying aside every weight, looking unto Jesus. And then he says, now run the race with endurance. How do we do that? We first of all, verse 2, have to consider him who endured such hostility. Consider Jesus who endured the cross. Jesus told us as disciples we must take up our cross and follow him. There's a needed sacrifice to follow him. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. So the first thing in running the race is to consider him who endured the cross. So looking to the cross. And secondly, consider him who endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest we become weary. Now, this is an interesting uh, terminology here. Verse 3, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. These words were used of runners who relax and collapse after they've crossed the finish line. So the picture is, and you've seen it in marathons probably at times, that you run your guts out, and by the time you're done, all you can do is just collapse. So the picture is after the finish line. Can you hear an amen? We don't want to become weary and discouraged in collapsing before that or relaxing before that. We've got a finish line that we're going after, and we want to make sure that we get to the one who's at the finish line and relax and collapse into his arms. Can you hear an amen? That once we're done, that's who we're going to, okay, it's all over. As Paul said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me. When we've crossed that line and we're done with our race, we're going to collapse and relax in the arms of Jesus. Paul also said, none of these things move me. So he himself was keeping on, keeping on. So running the race, number one, we have to consider him and then now, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, number one, run with endurance. You've heard this before. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. How many of you would say amen to the marathon? <laughs> it's a marathon. So, we're, we're, yeah, there are times we've got to pick up the pace, but we've got to keep a pace. We've got to keep ourselves paced in obedience to God. In, and God's never going to require more of us than what he knows we have. But what we have in surrendering to him, he will push us forward. He would lead us continuing to, con to continue on. So laying aside the weight means let's not make it any harder than it needs to be. Amen? We've got a race to run. We've got a course to go. We've got, it, it requires endurance. So he's saying lay aside the things that are going to make it harder than it needs to be. And sin will always make it harder than it needs to be. So lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. Anything that would tempt me, we need to see that and realize I'm not going there. Anything that would trip me up, we need to see it 
and not go there. Anything that would make me tired in a bad way, wear me out, burden me down. We need to say, okay, I'm not going to let that continue. Anything that would thwart me or discourage me in any way, we need to ask the Lord by the Holy Spirit to see these things and lay them aside so we're not making it harder on ourselves than we need to. The opposition of Satan's sin in the world is a formidable trinity, for sure. But greater is he who is what? In us than he that's in the world. So we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given power to help us. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside to help. And we have these things. We have these people, the person of the Holy Spirit, the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, to continue to help us. So when he says there, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, Paul's, I think there's a couple things that could be going on here. He could be looking back to the cloud of witnesses and say, in the same sense, as we see what they have done, somebody might say to us, well, show me your scars. Show me what you've been through in endurance. He may also be thinking of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You've not resisted striving against sin to blood. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying. It was so, uh, the stress, actually, people believe that he actually broke the capillaries and blood actually came out of his skin. It was so, such a battle he was waging there in the Garden against Satan. He may be also saying, you have not yet resisted. In other words, there's upcoming difficulty. Things are yet to come, so you've not yet resisted. In other words, you're going to need to keep on enduring. You're going to need to keep on going. Speaking of trouble that may be coming, for many, martyrdom was what they were facing as the writer of the Hebrews was writing to them. So number one, run with endurance. Okay, how do we run the race? With endurance. Secondly, run with the exhortations to endure. And that's what he says there. You've, not, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. So again, as we're thinking about this race, we have to run with those exhortations that we receive. You know, I used to think that exhortation was kind of like a rebuke. Exhortation is not that. One who is exhorting is coming alongside to say, hey, here's where I can see you going. Here's where I see God directing you. The exhorter is someone who who helps us to get where God's called us to be. And so we need to run with the exhortations. It's great to be exhorted, isn't it? You leave and you feel, man, I've just been challenged. Sunday, George Verwer's coming. Now, he's with Operation Mobilization. He's walked with the Lord for 60 years. He's coming, and he is an exhorter. When you hear him on Sunday, he's walked with God for a long time. And so he's going to challenge us. And that's so good. My wife calls it, Charlotte calls it, it's like a heart massage. Someone sort of works your heart over, but it's a good thing. And you say, okay, I needed that, I needed that revival of the massage of my heart. He says, if you endure chastening, God's dealing with you. Now, how many times have you said, God's dealing with me? That's exactly right. He's dealing with me (laughs) through exhortation. God deals with you as as with sons. So it's not outside of the love of God. It's not God punishing. It's God exhorting us, chasing us, training us, as has been shared Lowell, you did a great job. Paul did a great job on this chapter. Again, this whole thing of running the race with endurance. We don't want to mistake the discipline of the Lord as something that's bad, as something that's coming 
because he doesn't love us, but we're, we're being chastened and trained because he does love us. And we've got to run with those exhortations. We've got to run with those chastenings, run with those things that God's given to us. And by the way, the word sons here is sons of full age, full grown, mature. See, there's never a time when we're past the need for God's exhortations and chastenings and correcting and training. Now, some of you have been walking with the Lord a long time. Would you say amen to that? God's always, and we need that, lest we prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, Lord, take my heart and seal it. Chasten me, Lord, where need be. Now, so, okay, so we need to run with endurance, run with the exhortations, and then here's another one, run with the corrections that God brings into our lives. Run with the corrections to endure. Now, notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Can you hear any men on that? We used to have a paddle in our, in our house. <laughs> pa is boss, as everyone knows, but what mom says always goes. And it was this paddle, and we all had to sign the back of it. And uh, it was used a couple times on my hind parts. <laughs> so it's a personal subjection to God, these corrections. So we have to make corrections, listen, and run with the corrections humbly, with humility. God is speaking to us about need to correct things. And the only way that's going to happen is if I humble myself under the mighty hand of God and receive the things that he's saying to me need to be corrected. There are phases I find, there's seasons. It might be a correction because there's some kind of anger that seems to be there. There seems to be some kind of impatience there. There's some, some kind of temptation that's there. And God's dealing with me about them. The only way that that's really going to be corrected is if I, if I run with humility and really receive that. So he says, we had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? We can say to answer that, yes. <laughs> For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. So be in subjection to God by personal, personal subjection in being humble, receiving these corrections with humility. Now, it's not only personal subjection to God, but it is also painful subjection to God. He says, no chastening seems to be joyous, but, but painful is it not painful to be corrected? We don't like to be corrected. It's, humi- it's humbling. It's painful. And yet, it's so needed. Little children, the only way you get to their heart is through pain. That's why I believe the scriptures give to us those instructions about don't spare the rod. Don't spare it because you're going to drive that evil far the thing God wants to get to our hearts, and sometimes the only way to our hearts, even as full-grown children, is through pain. We experience it. We realize something. Something comes to mind. All of a sudden, we realize, and it's painful, but it is necessary because God is not interested in outward performance. He's interested in the inward parts of our hearts, being in subjection to him and walking humbly with him. The little, it's like the little boy who was overheard praying, Lord, if you can make me a better boy, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. 
I'm having a real good time just like I am. <laughs> what did James says? Hey, submit to God. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It's so important that we make corrections humbly. Secondly, make corrections diligently. Diligently. Therefore, strengthen, now we're at our, at our verses for tonight. Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. In other words, exercise those limbs. When there's injury and there's problems, first of all, it must be taken care of as far as getting to a place where then it must be exercised. You have to begin using those muscles again, using that joint again, and then God begins to reestablish stability, strength. So exercise those limbs. Exercise those doings. As he says there, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You ever have feeble knees? My son, a year plus ago, he, I was wrestling him and Titus hit my leg and tore my ACL and partial tore of my meniscus. It was the most painful thing that I've ever been through. I haven't got it fixed yet because the doctor told me you don't have to get it fixed. You can live with it. I'm still debating on that one. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I don't trust it like I used to trust it. And I don't want to exercise the dumb thing either. <laughs> I looked at, well, this is what you have to do to exercise. How many of you like exercising? I saw half. It's like, well, <laughs> that's how I am. I don't like exercising. I want to go play ball or something like that. But he's saying here, hey, exercise those limbs exercise those areas of weakness. In other words, like Sunday, practice, practice, practice. Get out there and begin exercising those things toward godliness and righteousness and love. And then watch what the Lord can do in taking those things. And, you know, often, like with Jacob, God has to cripple us in our flesh so we're strong in the spirit. When we're not trusting what we used to trust, now we're trusting the Lord. And many times that trust is only experienced through the discipline of exercising ourselves and doing what God said to do. Then he strengthens us spiritually, so now we're no longer trusting the flesh, which we are prone to do. Hey, I got this one down. I, I can do that. I'm gifted here. I can. And the Lord has ways, does he not, of taking those areas that we thought we were so strong in. What does the Bible say? Beware he who thinks he stands lest he fall pride pride yeah before yeah pride i was gonna say pride follows destruction no pride comes before destruction and our pride can really get us tripped up spiritually speaking you know people may have talents but it may not be a gift it may be a detriment to their spiritual growth where God wants to take the foolish things and the weak things and the things that are, the world says are, are outcast and take those things. And as we exercise ourselves in these things spiritually, God can take and do amazing things through the most crazy instruments, can't he? <laughs> so be diligent to strengthen those hands. Be diligent to make straight paths for your feet. Now, this is another sort of facet of running the race with endurance, making corrections diligently. Be diligent to strengthen the feeble hands and then be diligent to make straight paths for your feet. Verse 13, 
make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So there's the exercise that's needed, but also there's the examining of the path. You got to clean it up. You know, when we were at the men's retreat, how many of you guys were at the men's retreat? We did that crazy soccer thing down the, right? And because of my knee, what we did is we put up a bunch of chairs and we were doing the slalom through the chairs. And uh, who was it? Jim, who's, I, I think he's like 67. He's going down the path and he comes back and he collapsed because he did something to his hamstring or something. And he's on the ground going, ah! Well, I'm running down there and my knee you know, because it's got all the holes. And so you, you just, I, I would rather be doing it on the pavement. But we're in the, on this field. So I'm going down and normally I would be going for it. <laughs> but I'm looking at that path that I can't, I can't do that right now. I, I don't want my knee, I don't want to collapse after I just saw Jim collapse. <laughs> so that's what he's saying. Hey, get on the pavement. Clear out the path, examine where you're running, examine what's in the path there, and then get rid of the things that are going to trip you up again. Get rid of the things that might cause trouble again. Now, we, I think sometimes we're just a hard learn, aren't we? We do things and, we, and, we, and it so hurts, and then we go and do it again. Then we go and do it again. And what he's saying here is make straight paths for your feet. In other words, clear out, clear off the path. Know what's going to cause problems. Know what's going to be in the way. And don't go there. Get rid of it. When, when uh, Jesus here, he said, make straight the way of the, John the Baptist rather, make straight the way of the Lord. Clear off the path. Examine where you're going. In fact, when we take communion, the Bible says examine yourselves. That's the time to look at where we're walking, to look at where we're where the direction say, you know, hold on a second. Jesus has paid the price for me. And I want to be walking that road of the cross, which is straight and narrow, but it leads where? To life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go that way. So, again, to make corrections diligently is to be diligent in making straight paths for our feet. Now, the Bible says that... Your word, O oh Lord, is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. So the word of God is essential in examining and seeing the path. I look at that verse there as saying, the word shows me where I am. It's a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then the word also directs me as to what's coming and shows me and helps me make those straight paths is the word of God. Now, verse 14, he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So number one, exercise those limbs. Amen? Second, examine the path. See where you're going. Make sure you see what's coming up. And then here's the one that I call accelerate the pursuit of holiness. Accelerate it. He says there, pursue peace with people and holiness. So accelerate your pursuit of peace. What's that? Personal relationships. Hey, if we want to run with endurance, let me tell you one of the greatest hindrances is relationship problems. It is. But yet that's the very forging of holiness. If we were just by ourselves, we'd probably think we're the most holy people in the whole world. We'd be doing just fine, thank you. But we're not. Because it's in, like, 1 John again on Sunday. If we say we love God, 
We must love our brothers. We can't say we love God whom we have not seen and love our brother whom we have seen. You see, to really know the love of God is to love our brothers. And so he says here, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So seek to be in harmony with people as much as lies in us, amen? We've got to do the best that we can to pursue personal relationship healing, wholeness, reconciliation, Make sure that I'm doing the best I can in the relationships that I have to live them in such a way that I'm pursuing the things that make for peace and joy and righteousness and forgiveness. And many times, does that not include peace coming through repentance and acknowledging that and forgiving and saying, I forgive you. Peace is restored, just like with the Lord. When I say, please, I, I, I was wrong, please forgive me. And then the other person says, I forgive you. Peace is restored. The the relationship can be reconciled. Maybe not right away, but that's what he says. Pursue it. Accelerate that. Look after holiness. Now, there are in, in the book of Hebrews, there are three indispensable things that are brought out for us. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So the indispensable shedding of blood, without, the word without is the key, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Secondly, in 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So these are indispensable things brought out in the book of Hebrews. Without blood, there's no remission. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then this one here, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Wow. You see, if we really want to see God, we're going to see it in our relationships with people, pursuing holiness and realizing that's where God abides. That's where we find his presence. So make corrections diligently. And the the third thought here is make corrections carefully. Carefully. He says in chapter 12, verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, May I encourage you, as I am encouraged, we have to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We need the grace of God to flow over our lives daily. Can I hear an amen on that? I need it, you need it. God giving, the thing, giving to us the things that we don't deserve, his grace. And he says they're looking carefully as anyone falls short of the grace of God. We don't want to fall short of that. In other words, keep on letting it keep on flowing into our lives, the grace of God. Paul told Timothy, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. He said to his son, be strong in the grace. Do you say that to your children? God says it to his children all the time. Be strong in my grace. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's the grace of God. Paul said, I am what I am by what? The grace of God. Paul looked at his life as powerful it was before he knew Christ. He called that dung. As much as God used him after he came to know Christ, he called that the grace of God. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. He said, it's the grace of God in me. I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. So we operate from the place of grace toward us. 
Paul told the Corinthians, he pleaded with them not to receive the grace of God in vain. In vain. In other words, let it be the fullness of everything we are doing. And let's, let's again, make corrections carefully. Number one, realize we have to be receiving the grace of God. Secondly, so making corrections carefully, be careful to receive the grace of God. And secondly, be careful to root out any bitterness. Root it out. Notice what he says again, verse 15. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now, get the connection. Being strong in the grace is what deals with bitterness. Lest any root of bitterness, it says there, springing up cause trouble. Bitterness is a troubling thing, is it not? How do we become bitter? When we begin looking at other people or looking at our circumstances and we begin to say in our heart, it's not fair. God, you've sold me short. God, you owe me. Or to a person, you owe me. You sold me short. Somebody owes me. The story that comes to mind with this is Naomi, book of Ruth. Now, Naomi, the, the word means sweetness or pleasant. And you know the story of Naomi. She lost her husband, Elimelech, her two sons, Malon and Chilion, when she went to Moab. And there, her two sons married, her husband died, and both of her sons died. And so she, in then going to return to Bethlehem, you know the story, Orpah, one of her daughter-in-laws, and Ruth were invited, were wanting to go with her. But Ruth, Naomi said, well, you know, are you going to wait till I have another son? I have no more sons for you here, so you should stay here and find someone and get married. So it says Orpah stayed, but Ruth said what? It says she clung to her and said, your God will be my God, your people, my people. And so she went back then with Naomi to Bethlehem. As she returned home with her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, it says in Ruth 1.19, Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. So, wow, you know, Naomi's returning home with one of her daughter-in-laws. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now the question there is, sweetness and pleasant wasn't the countenance of her life. Something happened. Something was obviously different. They could see it all over her face. And so she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Don't call me sweetness. Don't call me pleasant. But call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi's testimony was, what you see is what's happened. Though Ruth had left all to be with her, Naomi saw only emptiness inside and out. That's all she saw. Now, bitterness does that. It empties us of any substance that can and is there if we can see it. If we can see past these things, if we can get past them. But Naomi saw only the loneliness, abandonment, and the helplessness of widowhood. Now, of course, God would intervene and send Boaz to the scene 
And we know the story of the kinsman redeemer. Now, something, though, that we don't want to miss in this story of Naomi, it's a wonderful story of redemption, is that Naomi became very involved in the life of Ruth. She began basically giving herself to getting Ruth married. For, for good reason. She had, you know, she needed kinsmen. But her life became one that was wrapped up in someone else's life. In helping Ruth and knowing Boaz and making arrangements and trying to see if this thing might be indeed the hand of the Lord. It was this involvement that carried along the story. That makes the story. And it carried Naomi along in her bitter state. It's a fabulous perspective on the story. And I think that that daughter-in-law Ruth for Naomi was her deliverance from bitterness. And we have such a one alongside us in the name of Jesus. He's there. He's watching over us and working these things through us. And we can expect that if that's what we're allowing, and Ruth was, was just that. For, she was you know, just there for Naomi to help. And so the bitterness of life had not defiled her love for Ruth. And I want to tell you something. Children do that. We love our children. I'll tell you, grandchildren do that. They can carry us along because we love them. We care for them. That's a good thing, a very good thing. That love was her literal spiritual redemption in Boaz. Now, we read the end of the story of Ruth, Naomi. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman, excuse me, the women, the same ones that said to her in the beginning of the story, are you Naomi? The women of Bethlehem said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you as a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. It's a fabulous story. I think of what Mary birthed for us is our redeemer. Then, this gets me. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom. And, she, and became a nurse to him. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi. Not Ruth, Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He, he is the father of Jesse, who is the father of who? David. Who is the father of who? Christ. Isn't that fabulous? It's a great picture of God dealing with our lives in the areas of bitterness. It's interesting what is connected with bitterness in Ephesians. Anger, wrath, corrupt words. In fact, Ephesians says it's giving place to the devil. Clamor, evil speaking. So as James says, hey, fresh water doesn't come out of salt water. So what comes out 
Is it an indication that possibly there's some seeds of bitterness there? I see this story as saying, hey, get involved in loving someone's life that you love. Let God work in your heart to bring about a rooting out of those bitternesses through someone in your life. We must continually look to Jesus, our Redeemer, to help us in this area. His forgiveness is great. You know, a bitter root equals bitter fruit. We don't want that. Now, be careful to receive the grace of God. Be careful to root out any bitterness. And the final one is just be careful to repent. Be careful to repent. Notice what it says there. Lest any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Verse 17. For you know that after when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Fornicator is spiritual adultery. It's adultery of the heart. It's impurity. The profane is a secular attitude of heart. It's worldly. That's what that word profane means. So Esau didn't recognize his spiritual heritage, nor did he care about it. When he sought repentance, he had gone to a place where there, where there wasn't, he couldn't find that. He sought after the blessing, but the repentance was not there any longer for him. Now, Profane isn't speaking of blasphemous speech or filthy language. This is interesting to me. It comes from the Latin words pro, which means either against or for, either one, and phenom, which means temple. So it's the opposite of holy is what the word profane is. It speaks of the non-religious or the secular heart attitude. Esau was a godless man. He saw no need to honor God. Or to think in those terms. Now, another interesting insight into this word is outside of every fane or outside of every temple, there was an area of land that was open to everyone. Where people gathered, an open place, it had no enclosure. Anyone could gather there. So in contrast, that with a sacred enclosure. You have the secular, no bounds, and a sacred enclosure profane against or for the temple. Esau had no such sacred enclosure in his life, in his heart. He was open to whatever, all the secular and worldly reasonings. And so what did he do? He sold his birthright because it didn't matter to him. What mattered to him was the gratification of the now. Are we not inundated with the gratification of the now? You got to have this, you got to have that. And we're, we're, that's just how it goes. There's no sacred enclosure of our hearts into what is godly and holy. It's just open to anything. Anyone can trod there. Close with a couple passages tonight, and then we'll go into some discussion. Paul said to the Corinthians, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? In other words, we are going to be rewarded. We're going to receive something, each one individually. We're not running against one another in that sense. We're running against ourselves, our flesh, the world, the devil, who wants to ensnare us and entangle us. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for a what? 
imperishable crown. Therefore I run, Paul said, thus I, not with uncertainty. So running the race means we have to run making corrections diligently, making corrections carefully, making corrections humbly. We've got to be running with the exhortations. We've got to be running with endurance, not with uncertainty. He said, thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest having preached to others. I myself, Paul saw the the possibility he would be disqualified. We don't want to be disqualified, amen? Galatians, Paul said, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? See, hindrances. And then finally in Philippians, Paul said this, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, he said, reaching forward, striving forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I'm not stopping. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. I was very encouraged, Lord, just reading through these things and thinking through these things. I'm thankful, Lord, that you do discipline us and you do train us and you do equip us, that you are with us. And, Lord, in you is that sacred enclosure where we learn, where we're secure and safe, where you're doing the work that you want to do in our lives. So, Lord, we want to be careful to repent careful to run with the corrections, careful to run with the exhortations. We want to look, keep our eyes fastened on you, Jesus, because you're the pioneer and you're the promise, the one who will give us victory and lead our lives in victory. So, Lord, please forgive us of our secularness and forgive us of our profane, the profane things of our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for you know, thinking we can run on paths that are full of stuff that's just going to trip us up and injure us even further. Forgive us, Lord, for not laying aside the weights that really drag us down. But, Lord, then through repentance and through confession and through conviction, whatever it is, as we lay them down, we realize, now that, I get it. The sin ensnares us. So, Lord, We bring this study to you, bring it to our hearts, Lord, and grant us, I pray, fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.